0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Today, we are in Genesis chapter 24. And we want to talk together a little bit this morning about service, about what it looks like for us to put on the attitude of a servant, how Jesus has exemplified the attitude of a servant as we kind of dig into this story of Abraham's servant. And so here's our big idea. God's faithfulness to his promise can engage his servants and comfort his people. You're going to see this kind of, there's a lot of verses here this morning, 67 verses, but in verses 1 through 9, we're going to see a pact. Abraham's servant promises to find Isaac a wife, and and we're going to kind of talk through that. And then in verses 10 through 61, kind of the the meat, the bulk of this passage, uh, God's providence is is on clear display. God providentially draws Abraham's servant to Rebekah. And then finally, we'll see Isaac's peace in verses 62 through 67. God comforts Isaac by being faithful to his promise. I want to dig in this morning. I want to dive into our text, but first I just want to pause one last time and ask that God would would meet us, that he would allow us to see from this narrative what exactly he has for us to see about Christ. And so let's pray to that end this morning. Lord, show us your true servant, Jesus Show us the nature of of the one who came not to be served, but to serve. And Lord, allow us to resonate with your heart in that and to be finding new expressions of your grace here this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to dig in 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 chapter 24, verses one through nine. So read with me, Genesis chapter 24, verse one. Now Abraham was old. Well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now let's just stop and talk about what exactly is happening here. Abraham makes his servant take an oath. He wants a promise from this servant. In verses 2 through 4, he kind of gives the details. He starts off with this negative statement. He says in verse 3, You will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. That is, Abraham's servant is not to find a wife for Isaac from among Abraham's neighbors. This is the first in a long line of Old Testament statements against marrying people from other nations. Uh, So Abraham is forbidding this for his own son to his servant, and and it's later on kind of codified in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses writes this, you shall not intermarry with them, that's with the nations, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. This is Abraham's concern, we, we assume. that His concern is that Isaac would be turned away to other gods because of the presence of an idol-worshipping wife. And if you're saying, "I I don't see that happening, just remember the life of Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon takes many foreign wives, and this is what the passage says, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. It's a reminder here this morning that we take marriage seriously so that each person is kind of aimed in the same direction of pleasing Christ. The New Testament calls it being unequally yoked, that we would take on a partner in marriage that was not directed toward the lordship of Jesus as we were. Or maybe we aren't as directed to the lordship of Jesus as they are. And so what's happening is that Abraham is concerned that these Canaanites would lead Isaac toward idol worship and the promise of the covenant would be lost. But verse 4, what's stated negatively in verse 3 is stated positively in verse 4. But go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. If your parents ever say to you, let's go to the family reunion so we can find you a wife. You've got issues, right? No, but this is a little bit different, different time, different place. Abraham's direction wasn't just a a ban on any Canaanite women. It was a push toward a specific people, those people who were tuned in to the heart of God, these descendants of Noah from uh, the same line as Abraham that had their hearts tuned to to what God was doing. See, it's a reminder here this morning that when we read uh, in verses 1 through 9 that Abraham's faith is real. Now look how that comes about in verse 5. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this master. So what's happening here? The servant raises this question. He's saying, okay, but what happens if this foreign woman who I've never met, who never met Abraham, doesn't want to travel hundreds of miles across the face of the earth back here to marry a man she never met? What happens then? Now, remember, Abraham hasn't seen his brother or his nephews or anything for 30 to 40 years. He hasn't been around in this culture. And so convincing a woman who he has never met or has never met Abraham uh, to come back to Canaan seems a little bit far-fetched. So the natural solution, according to this servant, verse 5, is to take Isaac back to the land of Ur. Back to the land of Abraham's upbringing. So Abraham gives a second request. Don't take Isaac back to the land. In fact, he says it in verse 6. Look, he says, see to it that you do not take my son back there. And then he closes his statement in verse 8 in the same way, only you must not take my son back there. He begins his response and he ends his response with this prohibition against taking Isaac back to that land, to that people. Why is this such a big deal to Abraham? Well, it's a reminder that Abraham remembers the promise of God. That's what he says in verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. See, Abraham's acting in faith on the promise of God. Further, what verse 7 brings out is that Abraham believes that God will provide for this plan. Verse seven, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So Abraham recognizes that it's foolish for God to promise to make a nation out of Abraham but not provide the means to fulfill that. It's foolish for God to go through all of the situation that we saw with Sarah and Abraham and the childlessness finally to provide Isaac but not to provide a wife for Isaac and so Abraham doubles down on the promise of God. And so Abraham sets up his servant to trust God's leading as well. Look at verse 8. He says, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. That is, if she won't come, don't try to make her. If the Lord's not providing this situation, you're free from your oath." And so Abraham is living out this life of faith. It's it's a recognition this morning that Abraham's faith is real, isn't it? Check out Abe's theology in verses two through nine. By the way, I'm getting tired of saying the three-syllable name Abraham, so I'm just gonna call him Abe from now on, right? Check out Abe's theology in verses two and verses nine. In verse three, he says, he sees God as sovereignly in control of both heaven and earth. That's what he says there in verse three, right? He says um, that I make you uh, swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and of earth, that God is in control of everything. Abe is not some uh, deist who just expects God to set everything in motion and then he takes his hands off and says, work it out. Abe is not some atheist who thinks that God, there is no God, there is no intervention from God. Abe is counting on the issue of God being involved in his world and bringing about actively his promises that he's made to him. Verse 7, Abe sees that God who, the God who promised to give this land to Abe's offspring will send his angel ahead of the servant. Not only does he know that God rules over heaven and earth, he anticipates that God would insert himself into the process to bring about his design. See, Abraham doesn't just comprehend the promise or believe it to be true. Abraham acts on the promise of God. He sets in motion particular actions amongst his servants and in his own life and in his own heart that would be bent towards seeing the fulfillment of God's promise. He takes initiative in seeing the promise fulfilled, yet knowing that only God can fulfill it reformers used to describe. They would have this discussion uh, familiar with the the church history. Uh, In the 1500s, 1600s, there was this movement called the Reformation. It was kind of a split away from the Catholic Church. It started with Martin Luther nailing these 95 theses to the door at the church in Wittenberg and uh, kind of set this trajectory for history for what we call Protestantism. But the reformers had this discussion about what the nature of true faith was, and they saw three components to the nature of true faith. Now, this is written in Latin, so just kind of bear with me for a second. But there's the notitia, that just is a Latin word that means information. It's, It's the content of faith. And so if you are to be a person of faith in Jesus, you have to understand just the nuts and bolts of the gospel That Jesus laid down his life for sinners like you and me. That he took on punishment and he gave us righteousness through faith. And so there's just the information of the gospel. There's the assensus. There's the belief that these things are true. The Latin word just means assent. It's just this notion that I don't reject those claims. I actually think that they're true. But if you have just those two things, if you have an understanding of the gospel and you just think it's just basically true, that is not in and of itself saving faith. What the reformers would say is that the level, the third element of true faith is trust or fiducia. It's the personal trust in God. It's the trust that my righteousness will not save me. And that I will stand before God and give an account for my life and the only thing that I can truly plead before the throne of God is the righteous life of Jesus in my place. See, Abraham goes beyond simply understanding God's promise, simply assenting to it to be true and he presses in to actually trusting in the promise of God. He trusts in and believes that God will bring a bride to his own son in ways that preserve the promise ever see that image? I don't know if you've ever seen it. There's an image of of a woman sitting on a chair, and underneath it is this Chihuahua, right? I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's this woman sitting on a chair, kind of a a larger woman, and this little Chihuahua, and that is what we call faith, right? The Chihuahua is expressing faith in the chair, right? Because if that gives way, that Chihuahua is done. We recognize that we ourselves place faith in a way that actually puts everything on the line, that recognizes that we have everything to lose if we're wrong. But Abraham's faith is going to be carried on. It's not just a, a faith that's internal to Abraham. What we see in Genesis 24 is that Abraham presses others around him into expressions of faith as well. And so what we see is this servant is going to go and carry out his task in verses 10 through 61. And if we saw a pact between Abraham's servant and uh, Abraham, what we see here is God's providence, God providentially drawing Abraham's servant to Rebekah. So look with me at verses 10 through 14. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia. to. Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down to, outside the city by the well of water at the time of the evening, the time when women go to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. What's, what's he doing? I see the servants preparing Uh, The situation in faith. In verses 10 through 14, he's gathering all of the supplies. He gathers the supplies, and he heads out to the city uh, of Nahor. That is Abraham's brother. Remember, Abraham had a brother named Nahor, and and he had all of these sons. That's what we saw back at the end of Genesis 22. And so, uh, Abraham's servant has moved out. He's there in the land. He sets himself up beside this well of water. He's going to bring this plan to fruition. He's going to set his plan into action, as it were. so... It's Not all he does, though. Verses 12 through 14, we see the nature of this prayer. And I've read the first sentence, verse 12. He said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and he who... Uh, shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. If you notice in his prayer, there's a term that's used twice in verses 12 and 14. Uh, The servant talks about God's steadfast love. That is God's covenant faithfulness. I'm gonna bring up a definition from... uh, Vine's Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, it says this, the word uh, refers primarily to mutual and reciprocal rights and obligations between the parties of a relationship, especially Yahweh and Israel. But hesed is not only a matter of obligations, it's also of generosity. What this is getting at is this term is used to describe God's faithfulness to his covenant, to his promises. And so what's translated steadfast love, we might just say faithfulness, but the Old Testament language actually draws our attention to God's attention to his promise. And so the, the servant is actually praying, God, be faithful to the promise that you've made to Abraham. Show yourself faithful to that promise. That, that is, the servant is praying that God would be faithful, would accomplish the things that he had promised to Abraham. He asks God to, to bless his plan. He lays out this whole plan like, hey, I'm going to ask for water, and whoever waters these camels, that's also going to be uh, you know, a sign to me. So, what happens is that in verses 15 through 28, the servant identifies Rebekah. Look at verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. And she went down to the spring and filled her water and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, "'Please give me a little water to drink from your jar.' She said, "'Drink, my lord.' And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, "'I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking.' So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to to the well to draw water, and she drew well for all his camels. The men gazed at her, or the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So we meet Rebecca. And, And what... The text describes is that Rebecca is beautiful on the outside. Isn't that what we see in verse 16, right? She's a young woman, very attractive in appearance. She's been known by no man. But she's also a person of character. In verses 17 through 21, we have this description of, of her act of service. Re- Rebecca exhibits the character of a servant. So uh, here, Abraham's servant has traveled all of these miles. He's got 10 camels, right? The first thing you're going to do if you want to go on a wife hunting mission is collect all your camels, right? He's got all of these goods, all of these servants that are traveling with him and they've traveled hundreds of miles and so their camels and, and the servant are thirsty. And as Rebecca lets down her jar to give a drink of water to Abraham's servant, she sees the need for these camels to be served as well. Dale Ralph Davis says that a camel, a thirsty camel, can drink about 25 gallons of water. Now you know, right? 25 gallons of water amongst 10 camels, that's 250 gallons of water. Now, just assume for a second that that jar she's holding holds, what, 3 to 5 gallons of water? She's making 50 to 80 trips back to the well, back and forth, back and forth to Water these camels, and it's funny to think modern society puts all the pressure on women to be beautiful externally, but it mocks the internal beauty that God's word consistently calls us to. Imagine going to the water cooler tomorrow, and you hear a number of young men talk about a young woman in the office, and they say, "You know, she's a real camel waterer." That one. We don't talk like that, do we? She's a real servant. She's a person of character on the inside. We miss this. But the story goes on in verses 22 through 25. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way of the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. See, the servant's plan comes to fruition. And, and he tests just this last bit of, of, of testing for Rebecca, right? He's saying, surely she's a servant. Surely she's right. She's, she's got the character. But is she of the right household? And sure enough, that's the question he poses. Is, First, whose family are you from? Secondly, can I stay the night? Kind of a little forward, right? But first, whose family are you from? And Rebecca responds, I'm, I'm from Bethuel's household. I'm Nahor's granddaughter. I am uh, the great-granddaughter of Nahor. I am somewhat distantly related to Abraham. And what happens in verse 26 to 28 is that the servant drops his head and blesses God. Let's just notice what he does here for a second first thing he does is he blesses God in verse 27, right? That's that's what he says there in verse 27. He calls out, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. The second thing he does is he recognizes his master. He recognizes those that he's called to serve at this moment. And so he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. And the third thing he does is he he stands in just amazement that God has seen fit to include him in this purpose. That's what he says later on. He says, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way of the house of my master's kinsmen. Derek Kidner kind of provides a different translation. He says, he led me, me, straight to the house of my father's kinsmen. And he recognizes God's priority. He recognizes his master next. And then finally, he's amazed that God would include him in this issue of service, in the fulfillment of his plan. But there's still one big question mark here in the servant's plan, isn't there? It's not just whether Rebecca would come. It's that the servant needs to talk to Rebecca's family. And in verses 29 through 61, we see that the servant kind of navigates Rebekah's family and the situation that happens there. I'm not going to read all of this because uh, this would be a kind of really long for us. But in verses 29 through 32, we, we meet Laban. And Laban's this guy that we're going to run into later in the, issue or with, in the story of Jacob. And Laban's always got his eyes and ears tuned in to how he can make a quick buck. In fact, in verses 29 and 30, Laban kind of zeroes in on these bracelets and everything else that Rebekah had gotten, and he's just being overly friendly to Abraham's servant. But in verse 33, the servant refuses to receive the hospitality that Laban wants to extend to him until he can uh, kind of press forward into his mission. And in verses 34 through 40, 49, Abe's servant uh, tells the whole story again. He's inviting Bethuel and Laban and all of Rebecca's household into this thing that God is doing. He's inviting them to see what he's seen. He's inviting them to own the story that he himself has been a part of. And in verse 49, he presses the issue to them. He says this, look with me at verse 49. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Hey, if you're going to get on board with the steadfast covenant love of my God, of the God of my uh, master Abraham, then let's do it, let's talk about that. But if not, I've got to know what my next steps are. So he presses them to the issue. And once again, the servant is, is pushing them to this moment of decision. But it's different this time. For the first time, the servant is voicing. He's talking about this steadfast love, but he's using it differently this time, not in relation to who God is. He's saying, are you going to get on board with the purpose of God? So, what happens in verses 50 and 51 is Bethuel and Laban give Rebekah away. Look at verse 50 with me as we see this in the text. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Laban and Bethuel recognize God's hand in the midst of this coming marriage. And so the servant convinces the family to let Rebekah go in verses 52 through 61. But the servant blesses the family in verses 52 through 54. But this moment of actual departure comes in verse 55 and and Laban and the mother object and they say, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days after that she may go. And the servant again presses the issue in verse 56. He said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. What happens is they ask Rebecca and Rebecca says, I'll go. This is the fast-forward version, right? We're kind of drawing in all the loose strings of, of God's faithfulness as he brings together this plan, and it reminds us that as Abraham hoped in God, it actually draws the servant into hope in God as well. Look at the servant's actions, his eruption in praise in verses 26 through 28, his call to Bethuel to join him uh, in God's provision for Isaac in verse 49, his urgency to bring Isaac back to Rebekah uh, that shows that he understands the promise of God and that he's eager to see it fulfilled. See, the recognition is that faith can be contagious. Faith can be contagious. We, we've talked a lot about contagious things, right, recently? COVID-19 can be contagious even while you show no symptoms. That's something that we've talked about, you know, you can be asymptomatic and you can uh, be in the presence of others and you can be passing on this sickness, this disease, but I suggest to you this morning that faith cannot be asymptomatic in an individual and be passed on to other people. That the contagiousness of faith requires that the symptoms of that faith actually be shown forth. See, faith is only contagious when it's showing its symptoms. That is, our faith in Jesus must be expressed, must be shown forth to pass on to others. There's this statement that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and it says this, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Have you ever heard that statement? I just want to dig into that for a second and say, is that possible? Is it possible for us to preach the gospel silently? Silently? I'm not denying that our actions should show our love for Christ. I'm not denying anything like that. But we should have a willingness to use the words of the gospel as we have faith in the gospel. As we'll talk here in a moment, we'll recognize that the promise of God should shape our service. So this morning, we recognize that we want to be those who show forth the goodness of God in the gospel, but also preach with words. See, the denouement of all this passage in verses 62 through 67 is Isaac's peace. Look at verse 62 with me. Now Isaac had returned from Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. See, finally, Isaac and Rebekah meet. And Rebecca puts on the veil, covers her face. It's kind of a, a marital ceremony kind of thing that happens here in the book of Genesis. And so what happens is Isaac brings Rebekah into his household, he marries her, and he is comforted by the presence of Rebecca. right? Verse 66 six kind of gives the upshot of all of this. Or excuse me, verse 67. Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. She became his wife and he loved her So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Rebecca becomes a consolation to Isaac. The truth is the loss of Isaac's mother leaves Isaac kind of turned around emotionally, but the faithfulness that God has to his promise helps restore his spirit. You're saying, what do we see in this? This is a lot of information, isn't it? Well, we kind of put together a little bit of a a timeline for us. There's Abraham. Abraham has an interaction with his servant, who then has an interaction with with Rachel and Bethuel and Laban, and eventually that comes to bear on the life of Isaac. Now, I want to just highlight the expressions of faith amongst each of the parties that were here. Abraham, in verse 7, says, "'The Lord swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land.'" and he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Hear the expression of faith from Abraham. What about Abraham's servant? Verse 12, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Be faithful to your covenant, Lord. Bethuel and and Laban and Rachel, Laban and Bethuel respond in verses 50 and 51, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you good or bad. bad or good, take her and go. And then finally, it all kind of lays out in the life of Isaac. Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now just think about this for a second. As we look at this interaction that happens, think about how inefficient this is. Abraham, who lives in the land of Canaan with his son Isaac, wants to find a wife for Isaac, but chooses to travel hundreds of miles away at massive cost, at lots of social anxiety. But the faith of Abraham is spread and it invites new participants to see the covenant faithfulness of God. As we look at Abraham's servant, we see how mundane and ordinary his service is. Notice that the servant never gets a name They never tell us his name. This would be a lot easier to preach if I didn't have to say Abraham's servant every time we talked about him. He never is even named. It's like uh, God's word doesn't want to highlight this individual. It wants us to just make it run-of-the-mill obedience. This man is yet another nameless, faceless individual who acts on the promise of God and sees God's covenant faithfulness this morning, as we kind of step back from this, we see that that the way God promises to us actually shapes the way that we serve him. The way that God gives promises to us, the way that God shows covenant faithfulness shapes the way that we serve him. When God promises to us that it should clarify the way we speak and act to others, our actions should show the true nature of our belief. James says it this way, he says, I will show you my faith by my works. And so God, God's promises kind of bring shape to Abraham's servant's actions. Because God promised Abraham that he would be a great nation, the servant has to find a wife for Isaac. Because God promised Abraham, that, uh, Isaac cannot, excuse me, because God promised these things to Abraham, God can't, or Abraham's servant cannot take a wife from idol-worshiping Canaan. Because God promised Abraham the land, the servant can't take Isaac back to Nahor. See, we recognize this morning that uh, the servant is called to a very specific kind of action because of the promises of God. We also recognize this morning that there's another servant of God that would come who would leave his home who found himself a bride, who delighted to do his father's will. This morning I want to take a look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. It will be on the screen in front of us. This is a story from uh, from the book of Matthew where uh, the disciples kind of show how off-kilter they are with the purpose of God. Look at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. What's going on here? These disciples, the the mother of the sons of Zebedee, she, she comes and she's making requests on behalf of her. Two sons. And she's saying, Grant to my two sons that one would sit on your left and one would sit on your right in, in your kingdom. And what's this about? It's this idea that when I'm closer to Jesus, I receive more glory in the kingdom, right? And, and it's not just that they have this heart, because later on, those same disciples that hear or overhear the conversation, they're jealous of the sons of Zebedee. They're jealous of these two disciples that have requested. All of these people are just kind of orienting themselves. Uh, to this idea of how can I get the most amount of glory for me? And what happens is Jesus responds in verses 25 through 28. Jesus called to them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus reorients what true service is. He starts with verse 25. He says that the world values authority. Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They, they dominate. When you go to a uh, different nation at this time. They would just rule over these people. They would dominate them. They would uh, look to them for to just collect resources from them. They would overtax them, overburden them. The sign that you have uh, arrived as a leader in this mindset is how many underlings you have. But in verses 26 through 27, Jesus says, that's that's not what the kingdom is about. He says, it shall shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be uh, first among you must be your slave. The Son of Man didn't come to serve, or excuse me, that's the exact opposite of what he says. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the... Kingdom values service, and first and foremost is our king, Jesus, who laid down his life. He gave himself. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. See, Jesus exists as this example to us as the person who lays down his desire. There's this story in John 13 where Jesus disrobes. He takes on the role of a servant, and he starts washing the disciples' feet. Jesus exists as a servant, but it goes beyond that to say he's not just a servant, he's a ransom. That he actually took on the role of laying down his life, not just in service to us, but in redemption of us. That if you and I want to be a servant, we must first be ransomed. We must first be paid for. You cannot exist as a servant if you don't have a hope beyond your service. If you are just banking on this life and this life only, you will not serve others. Jesus orients us to this idea that he has become ransom so that we might join with him in acts of service. See, here's the question for us this morning. Does God's promise shape your life? God may be faithful to his promises, but are we faithful to God's promises? I meet all kinds of individuals who say they love Jesus, but when it comes uh, to practical rhythms of life in Christian faith, they fail and they falter. And I don't mean to sound overly legalistic, that's not my intention, but there are people who say they love Jesus, but they know little of his self-denial. They know little of his rhythms of service. You know, modern day Christian faith requires so little of us. Look at the passages in Matthew 13 that describe the kingdom of God, where this kingdom is like this pearl of great price, and you go and you sell everything you have that you might have it. You, you find a treasure in a field, and you sell all of your possessions that you might buy the field. But what modern-day Christianity has said, yes, the treasure is valuable. The pearl is valuable. We value those things, but we gawk at the price tag. We say it's not worth it. I don't have to give up my life in patterns of service. I don't have to take up my cross to follow Christ. The promise of God does not shape my life. See, the promises of God should shape our living. When God tells us things like, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, like Matthew 16, the question should be, am I attending church when, when God tells us, this is the blood of my covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, drink this in remembrance of me, do you take communion? When God tells us that we are ambassadors and that God is making his appeal through us, do you share your faith? We should have rhythms of life that take on the fullness of God's promise. So here's the truth this morning, and this is what I'm kind of getting at, is the gospel, the truth of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection can both thrill and conscript us. The gospel can thrill you. The gospel can fill you with this sense of God's purpose in the world. It can engage your heart and your mind and your emotions. It can address all of the needs of human, human interaction but it can also conscript us and, fall us and call us into acts of service. See, I'm worried this morning that the gospel becomes nothing but trivia to us. And when the gospel is nothing but trivia to us, we, we'll do whatever we feel like doing. I was talking with a friend earlier this month, and they started describing their Theological view of some finer point of something or other. And I just got the sense when I was talking with this individual that they were kind of putting theology on, statements about who God was and the nature of, of God's reality, kind of like you buy a shirt. Just, is it fashionable? Does it work? We do that sometimes, don't we? we? We talk about these concepts and we just kind of throw them around as if they were nothing. But in all reality, we are meant to be those who sit underneath the word of God and put on practices in our life in keeping with those promises. See, the question in my friend's heart, it seemed, was, was not what does the word say, but rather what fits my desire or how things should be? See, if the gospel is the sum of bonum, the greatest good, it will take on ever increasing importance to you and to I. See, the truth is this morning the gospel should thrillingly conscript you. That the beauty of the gospel is so precious it should invite you into its service. We shouldn't have to twist the arms of others into acts of service toward one another. We should be those who enter into service willingly because of our love for the promises of God. You know, um, I'm over my time, so bear with me. A lot of times I, I feel like I orient myself to the promise of God and I'll say, okay, here's my areas of service as if in my calendar. Well, uh, Monday night, we're gonna hang out with this, these people and we're gonna talk through this issue and that's how I'm gonna serve them. And we kind of uh, outline, certain, um, outline certain places where we would enter into service. We, we uh, say, oh, I'm going to do my service on Sunday morning in the nursery or wherever else it might be. But the thing we have to think about is, is not the areas of service. It's, that, it's that how I can make every aspect of my life it's subservient to the gospel and to God's purpose in the world. We tend to think about the gospel like a microscope or a telescope. The gospel is a microscope, and it's meant to look at the intricacies of me. It's meant to kind of uh, bring about all of the inadequacies and kind of speak into those inadequacies. Or, Or some of us treat the gospel like a telescope. It's meant to explain the vast things of the world. The truth is that the gospel is more like a pair of glasses, And when we put on the pair of glasses, we see all of God's world through that particular lens. We see all of it for his purpose. We see all of it for his goodness and his design. When Abraham's servant takes on this task, he takes this oath, he's entering into some mundane task, travel, discussion, but he sees in it the promise of God. Do your eyes look for the promise of God? Do you look to be faithful to the things that God has called you to be faithful to. Let's pray this morning that God makes us those people. Lord, we ask now that you would allow us to be faithful to your promises. Lord, we've seen so much interaction in these chapters in Genesis where Abraham is, is learning to faithfully execute life according to the promise that you've given him. And sometimes he succeeds and sometimes he fails, yet we recognize that We ourselves succeed and fail at times. Give us grace in our need, but allow us to see with clarity your overarching purpose in this world. Allow us to engage what you've called us to. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.